personal, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of the words we have just sung. That you are with us in every season of life. That you shepherd us through all the ups and downs. Through the valleys as well as the mountaintops. And so, Father, we pray this morning that as we come to your word by your Holy Spirit, you might be with us now that you might speak to our hearts, that whatever our circumstances today, we might know your presence with us, leading and guiding, sustaining and keeping. And we pray that as we come to your word now, we might see your son, Jesus Christ. We might delight that he came, and we might delight that he is coming again. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please do uh, take a seat and uh, please keep your Bibles open at Ruth chapter 1. When it comes to Christmas preparations, I wonder, are you a big picture person Or are you someone who really goes after the details? When you imagine your Christmas this year, is it really more about the whole vibe that you're going for? Who you'll be with? Looking forward to that Christmassy atmosphere, the the festive ambiance? Or are you more thinking of how many days are left to sort out the food and the presents and the transport? And where is that list of all the church events? Because we really need to make sure they're all in the diary. Well, over the next four weeks in the run-up to Christmas, in our morning services here at Cornerstone, we're going to be working our way through the book of Ruth. And perhaps uh, we know already that our God is a God of the big picture. He's the one, after all, who, who forms and establishes nations who raises up and and humbles rulers, the God who concerns himself with, with the ebb and flow of international affairs. But this book, well, this book is a reminder to us that that same God is also a God of the details, the God of, of each and every family, the God of the downtrodden and penniless, the God of the everyday. The book of Ruth reminds us that our God is interested in us, interested in our daily lives. Our God is sovereign not only over the big things, but over the small as well. And the story we find here is is perfect for Advent because it's a story of waiting. A story of of sorrow and loss, of sadness and gloom, and of waiting. Waiting for for someone to come. Waiting for a saviour to come. Waiting for a redeemer. And so let me encourage you to engage with the book of Ruth this Advent. Um, Out in the foyer after the service, we'll be selling these books. And in here, you'll find uh, 25 devotions 
to take you through uh, December right through to Christmas Day. Devotions from the book of Ruth, helping us to wait, to wait and to hope for the one who is coming soon. Please do get one of these if you can. And let's together as a church family wait for our Redeemer this Advent. You know, there's a a wonderful little phrase in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3. As it turned out. And that phrase really sums up how things must have seemed for the characters we're about to meet as they went through their lives. Lives full of apparent coincidences, of happy or unhappy accidents. But as we shall see, the the message of Ruth is that things don't just turn out. Other God is at work. He is drawing his people back to him. He is working to bring sweetness out of even the most bitter of circumstances. He is working in our waiting. So let's meet our our small, insignificant family. And let's see how their interaction with the plans of Almighty God gives them a greater significance than they could possibly have grasped. Chapter 1 is is divided into three scenes. The first in Moab, the the second at a crossroads between Moab and Israel, and the third in Bethlehem. But before we get to those three episodes, the author of Ruth, like any good narrator, begins by setting the scene and introducing the main characters. Let's read again from verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled... And that's a crucial phrase. You see, it doesn't just just give us a time period for this story. It gives us a whole social and political context. It's a bit like the difference between saying in the 1960s or saying at the time of the Cold War and free love. Chronologically, both are the same, but, but the latter carries with it a whole lot of baggage. It tells us something of the mood of the time. It highlights the national and and international issues of the day. And that phrase in in verse 1, the time of the judges, it does just that. It's loaded with with theological and political significance. You see, the time of the judges was, was not a happy period for the nation of Israel. If you read through the book of Judges, you'll see that they were stuck in a cycle of rebellion against God, followed by his judgment, followed by the people crying out for his help, which God then responds to by raising up a new judge to lead them. And then the cycle repeats, then repeats. It's summed up like this in the final verse of the book of Judges. In our Bibles, just one verse before Ruth 1, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Israel had no king. They had rejected God's rule, and so everyone did as they saw fit. That's the context of the book of Ruth. That is the big picture. 
But remember, this is a book concerned also with the detail. So let's get back to verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. These were desperate times for an ordinary Israelite and his family. We can perhaps sense some of that desperation in this decision to go to Moab. It was at best a questionable decision. This family left Bethlehem, which means house of bread. They left the house of bread in the promised land. The land the Lord had promised would be flowing with milk and honey. And they went to Moab. Moab over the other side of the Jordan that was known for its idolatry and its long-standing antagonism towards ancient Israel. This move was at best born out of desperation. At worst, it was a failure to trust God to keep his promises. An attempt by Elimelech to, to take matters into his own hands. If God wouldn't provide in the way that he expected, well then Elimelech would see to it himself. And so Elimelech, with his wife Naomi and their sons, Marlon and Kilion, leave Bethlehem. And they went to Moab and lived there. And there is where the problems really began to mount up. If things had been tough in Judah, well, then they reached tragic proportions in Moab. Verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. First, Elimelech dies, and then Marlon and Kilion marry local women, tying the family to the region for the long term. As the months in Moab turned into years, and the brief stay became a significant episode in her life, Naomi must have begun to question the wisdom of the decision. And then, well, then the nightmare reaches its climax. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. There is a real starkness about the language of verse 5. Naomi was left. She was left. She'd arrived in Moab with a family, with, with her husband and sons. Now they were gone. Nowadays, this would be a terrible tragedy, and, and we would rightly join Naomi in weeping at the loss of so many beloved family members so quickly. But back then, in the society of the day, this was an unmitigated disaster. On top of the deep and, and terrible grief that undoubtedly settled upon Naomi's soul, she now had to deal with the societal implications of her situation. Without her husband, she was in a vulnerable place. She had no guarantee of inheriting Elimelech's property, and, and she lacked physical and legal protection. 
Without her sons, she had no future. The family name could not be continued, and the family inheritance would likely pass to some distant relative. Naomi had no place. She had no legal standing, no way of representing her interests. In a foreign land, in a time and and culture where a woman's standing was determined by her husband's, and her value was bound up with her male children, in that place, Naomi was bereft. She was left. But into that bleakness comes a glimmer of hope. Verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And here we get the first hint that the events of this story, however small, however mundane, they do not just happen. They are not coincidences. It is the Lord who brings relief to Israel, who provides food for his people. It is his action that causes Naomi to now begin the journey back to Bethlehem. following verses are are dominated by one word in Hebrew. In our version, it's it's variously translated as return or, or go back or turn back. But the significance is clear. The Lord longs for Naomi to return, to come back to him. As we shall see, it's not only Naomi that the Lord is calling to return to her creator and God. He has been weaving circumstances together to bring many from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, to bring them back into his family. So we come to the second scene in this, the opening act of our story. And we join Naomi and her daughters-in-law on the road back to Judah. They've reached a, a crossroads, a fork in the road. And Naomi is keen that Orpah and Ruth understand the gravity of the situation. This is the point when they must decide. Go back, she says. Go back to Moab and, and maybe you'll find new husbands, new lives there. But they refuse. They weep with her and, and they promise to stay with her. But Naomi persists. Let's pick up the conversation in verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. There's no hiding 
Naomi's distress at the situation she finds herself in. She is fully aware of the futility of her circumstances. She wants Ruth and Orpah to understand that her future with Naomi is no future at all. Customer at that time was that if a married man died with with no male heirs, well, then his younger brother would take his wife as his own. And any children they had would bear the name of the dead man, thus securing his family line. Naomi's point here is, is that she has no sons left. And no prospect of future sons to offer Ruth and Orpah as husbands. Even if by some miracle she were to conceive a son that day, they would still be husbandless until he grew up. In the culture of the day, they would still have been without hope, without prospects. Naomi knew that the future looked bleak for her, and if they stayed with her, for Ruth and Orpah too. And friends, notice here that there is no pretense. There's no sweeping aside of the anger and the heartache that Naomi feels. No attempt to push them down into the recesses of her being in order to put a brave face on it. She weeps. Verse 14, we're told she weeps again. Her circumstances are exceedingly bitter. Now, I realize that that all this weeping and distress, well, it may not be very British, but it is very biblical. Time and again in Scripture, we see the reality of pain in people's lives. The acknowledgement that life can truly be hard. And we see the profound effect of, of such suffering on the human heart. Nowhere are we told to to meet suffering by attempting to shrug it off. Rather, it is central to the Christian message that suffering and sadness and sickness and death, they are bad. They are hard to take. They are imposters in this world. As Robin Ham suggests in, in his devotional on these verses... He says, all this might not seem very Christmassy. But traditionally, Advent is understood as an opportunity to face up to the darkness in order to appreciate the light. Maybe our culture's desire to bring Christmas in early is symptomatic of trying to escape the reality of our brokenness. Yet no one can escape reality for long. In a world that aches with sin, pretending everything is endless cheer is both deceptive and exhausting. Dear friends, it is crucial that we acknowledge the reality of suffering. Where there is weeping to be done, we weep. Where circumstances, our own or others, are bitter, we weep. But we must also, as Naomi does, recognize that they are not mere 
circumstances. I wonder, did you notice, even in the depths of her distress, Naomi acknowledges the Lord's hand. It is the Lord who has brought about the chain of events that have led to this point. And it is the Lord who is powerful to grant Orpah and Ruth brighter futures. He is the one who has sovereignly ordained all that we have observed so far in chapter 1. And it seems at this moment that, that Naomi is not clear how or why exactly, but that the Lord is behind occurrences. Of that, she is sure. And for us too, as we look on at, at Naomi's misery, we cannot be sure exactly what God's reasons are. It certainly seems possible that there is an element of judgment here in response to the lack of faith Naomi and her family showed in moving to Moab. But the rest of Scripture prevents us from, from drawing simple cause and effect. Sinclair Ferguson, commenting on this passage, says Naomi's suffering is not explicable merely in terms of her sin. If it were that simple, she might be able to cope with it. But God is too majestic, too infinitely wise in his providences to be reduced to simple formulae when he brings his children into experiences of suffering. There must surely be a deeper analysis of these events. What is clear from this chapter and from the rest of the book is, is that God is sovereign over Naomi's suffering. And he is working through it. Whether it is judgment or, or discipline or something else, it is God's hand. It is in God's hand. And he acts to bring about his purposes through it. And if we need convincing of that, then we need only turn to the next few verses of our passage. Let's read on from verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Well, these words are stunning. Naomi couldn't have been clearer about the consequences of sticking with her. And for Orpah, well, well she was persuaded. The best move was back to Moab. But for Ruth, well, for Ruth, her love for her mother-in-law, for her late husband and his family, for his people, her love was so deep, her sense of loyalty so great, that having counted the cost, she decides to stick with Naomi. And not just for the journey, but for whatever may come their way once they're back in Bethlehem. What a beautiful kernel of comfort this woman must have been to Naomi in her darkest hour. When all was lost, Naomi was not truly left, for Ruth still clung to her. 
But you know, much as these verses tell us about the, the faithful character of Ruth, far more they tell us of the faithful character of Naomi's God. Because these words are not primarily about human love and loyalty. Rather, they are a a beautiful example of the mercy of God working through bitter, bitter circumstance to bring forth the sweetest of joys. Just listen again to, to what Ruth says. She says, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. This is not just a statement of commitment to Naomi. This is a profession of conversion. Ruth has joined the covenant people of God. And she goes on, she says, may the Lord deal with me. May the Lord. The Lord. When you see that word in in capitals in your Bibles, it means that it is the very name of God. Given to his people that they may know him personally. The Lord, Yahweh, the, the covenant name of God. And here it is on the lips of a Moabite. Friends, don't miss this. No one calls God Yahweh except those who know him, who know him as their God, their one and only God. Now, we can't know for sure when Ruth turned from the idols of Moab to the living and true God of Israel. Maybe Marlon spoke to her of his faith. Maybe the years of living alongside him and his family showed her the reality of Israel's God. But what a testament to Naomi, this declaration is. You see, Ruth had been with her, alongside her, sharing her pain. Ruth had seen Naomi in the deepest pit of sorrow. And what she had seen had convinced her all the more of the glory and praiseworthiness of Naomi's God. Clearly, Naomi doesn't have all the answers. But the way in which she endured her suffering, her continued acknowledgement of of God's sovereignty, well, it clearly left an impression on Ruth. How often the Lord uses the experiences of his people, especially in times of affliction and difficulty, to point others to himself. The people of God are, are called to suffer well. Not to pretend that everything's fine. Not to act as though we have all the answers all of the time. But instead to bear suffering. In the certain knowledge that our God is is sovereign over it. That he has his purposes. We may not always have the privilege of seeing the good he's working through our sorrow as Naomi did. But it may well be that as others Look on from outside. They see the Lord at work within us. Growing and strengthening our faith in him. And those who look on in turn are are encouraged. By seeing a bitter life 
well endured. Here in Ruth's declaration is the first taste of something sweet in Naomi's life. Out of the bitterness of the preceding years, out of all the the tragedy and pain and loss, the Lord has brought this great gain. His beloved daughter Ruth has been brought back to him. It was her belief that the Lord could provide some relief from her personal famine that led Naomi to set out on the road that would bring her back to Bethlehem. And it was the bitterness of Moab that brought Ruth with her into the loving arms of her Creator and Lord. But as we draw towards the end of this first act, in our final scene as Ruth and Naomi enter Bethlehem. Well, it's clear that for Naomi, the ravages of Moab are still too raw for her to be able to fully appreciate what the Lord was doing. She is still in the midst of all this turmoil. You can almost hear her her wistful chuckle as she reflects on the irony of her name. Naomi. Don't use that name for me. It means pleasant. Things have been far from pleasant for me. Mara would be a better fit. Bitter. That's a better description of my life. But notice that even in this closing statement, there is space for the Lord. It is he who has afflicted her. It is he who has brought this misfortune upon her. And I think there's even a glimpse of of Naomi's recognition of the Lord at work in her when she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She had once had a full life, full of of hope and, and love and relationship, but now those things are gone. She is empty. She is empty, yes, but she has been brought back. It may have taken her emptying to achieve it, but she has been brought back. And friends, that is what our Lord is in the business of doing, bringing people back. Sometimes it may take dramatic and and unpleasant events in our lives to achieve it, but he will bring back all those whom he desires for his family. He will go to extraordinary lengths to put us on the road that will take us back to Bethlehem. How can I say that so confidently? Well, because Naomi is not the only one in the Bible to have endured the pain of losing a son. She's not the only one to have been driven to the very edges of society by their circumstances. She's not the only one to have been left when all around have gone. Despised and rejected by mankind. A person of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces despised, held in low esteem, 
considered by others to have been punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Oh, those words could so easily have been spoken of Naomi, and yet they were not. They were spoken of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. You see, it is not just Ruth who has been brought back to the Lord through sadness and suffering and death. No, each and every person who has ever been brought into the family of God has been brought there through the pain and anguish, the heartache and sorrow that Jesus Christ endured on the cross. He stepped down into the darkness of this world and joined us in our sorrow and lament. Abandoned by his followers, forsaken by his father, he took the bitter cup and drank of its deepest depths. Though he had done no wrong and deserved no suffering, the punishment of all of us was laid on him. Why? To bring us back. To bring us back. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Friends, our God takes the bitterest things of this world. And from them brings forth the sweetest of redemptions. We'll finish today with the final verse of Ruth chapter 1. It's been a, a tough chapter with plenty of sorrow. But there is a beautiful detail that just so happens to occur. Right as the widows return to Bethlehem. Verse 22, so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Friends, let's acknowledge this Advent that the famine has been hard, truly hard. But now, the harvest is beginning. Let's pray. Almighty God, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not only a God of the big picture, but also of the detail. That you are at work in each and every life here. Through the sweetnesses of life, through the bitterness of life, you are working to draw your people to you. And we thank you that that was true for Naomi and for Ruth that it is true of, of many of us here in this room. We thank you most of all 
that through your Son, Jesus Christ, you yourself knew all the bitterness that this world has to offer. And yet through that, you brought sweet redemption to millions of people. And so, Father, we pray in the weeks ahead, teach us not to pretend that life is always easy, but teach us instead to see your hand, the hand of the Lord at work in all the circumstances of life to gather your children in, to bring your people home. 